Good morning. Got to make sure. It's still morning. So did you miss me? All right. Oh. I actually, uh, I heard really good things about, uh, about Rod's sermon last week, and, and praise the Lord. Actually, my father-in-law said, you need to go listen to that sermon. Uh, Rod did an awesome job, led by the Spirit. Are you ready? Um, are you ready for death, sorrow, crying, and pain to be done? I mean, doesn't it seem that just it's exponentially faster, like what's happening in our world? Just the last month, aren't you? I'm so thankful for the promise of Jesus' soon return. Because millions upon millions of people are suffering and dying without this promise. They, I mean, the promise is there. They're dying without the hope. That's why we're here. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and give you honor and glory. Lord, I ask that the spirit of the Lord is poured upon your people, your people inside this, these walls, your people outside the walls. May lights Start shining, and may people be drawn to the throne of grace. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Sing with me. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. In Christ the Lord. I don't know how many how many history buffs do we have in the in the congregation. So this is going a little outside of my comfort zone. How many how many people in here love history? Love history. So you might need to correct me if my history is a little bit off. Um, how many of you have served? in one of the armed forces. Do we have any? All right, we have a couple here. Thank you for your service. I don't know if you know this, and I saw little variables when I was researching this, but that in 1939, which was pre-what war? World War II, I mean, I guess it's pre-Vietnam War and all that also, I guess, uh, semantically. But... Pre-World War II, in 1939, it was believed that the U.S. Navy had 15 battleships, five aircraft carriers, 18 heavy cruisers, and 19 light cruisers. Total. I read somewhere that it was believed that we were right behind the Netherlands in the size of our Navy before World War II. That's not very big. Our army was smaller than the army in Portugal previous to World War II. Tiny. But what happened on December 7th of 1941, which many of you know, not many of you were around, was that 105 high-level bombers, 135 dive bombers, and 81 fighter aircraft attacked the U.S. fleet at what place? In Pearl Harbor, in Hawaii. 
And they took out, I want to get this correct, 18 warships, 188 aircraft, and 2,400 servicemen. And this precipitated this one event, which previous to 9-11 was the greatest attack on American soil that we had ever seen. And this precipitated a need for change that I don't know if we've seen in our country other than maybe in technology. By the end of the war, so from, from December of 41, December 7th of 1941 till August of 1945, it went from, we had 790 ships total in December of 1941 to 6,768 ships in 1945. And it was believed that the reason why our naval, it, more than our army, why our navy grew so much is we, weren't, we were the only one dealing with not one ocean. We were dealing with two oceans. We were, we were dealing with people on this side of the, the world and with people on this side of the world. So we needed to grow in a way that no other country did. But we also know that our army grew, all of our armed forces grew exponentially because of one event, the bombing at Pearl Harbor. There was a need for change. We were ripe for change. Actually, the rumblings were already there. We were already, from 1939 until 1941, we were already starting because we knew that the Japanese were bolstering their navy and we had to be prepared. But obviously, we were not prepared enough. There was a need for change. And actually... This has been pushed all throughout. There is a need for change, so let's change it. A need for change, let's change. People actually want change. I know we say change is hard, right? Growing pains. But people want change. That's why a couple of candidates ago, a couple of elections ago, we had this poster. President Obama ran with the idea, I will bring change. And in different words, so did this candidate after, who said, I want to be different. I don't want to be just a regular politician. I will bring change. All of our politicians are saying this. We don't want to do the same thing. We want to bring change. So some of you know this. Before, we'll say B.C., before Christ in my life, I went to a public university. I went there for three years, and I actually joined a fraternity. And I was very, very involved in a fraternity, in, in my fraternity. I, 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 I ran for all positions, and eventually I was on our executive board. And my big brother was the president, but he was about to graduate, and I was the next one in line. Now, you elect the president in, in a fraternity, but everybody knew Kent is going to be our next president. Nobody was going to run against me. So 
I didn't even prepare. And it came on this Sunday night, when we, we would always have our, our meetings on Sunday nights. On this Sunday night, I hadn't prepared a speech. I, I wasn't going to get dressed up. An hour before our election, a guy that had just moved back, an, an older brother, said, I'm going to run for president. And I found out about an hour before. And some of the guys said, well, do you know Dave's running against you? I said, all right, well, I think I'm still going to win. And so since he was the older brother, I was the one who was to give my speech first. I go in. I said, you know, I'd like to be president because uh, I think that we're a great house. You know, I, I sort of gave a bunch of, of fluff. And, and then I gave room for questions. And they said, what are you going to change said, I think we're a pretty good house. Not much. Dave comes in, and I find out from some people, well, he comes in with a tie. I mean, that automatically, that cloth necklace, man. He, he comes in with this tie, already looks professional, and he gives the speech of how he's going to change the fraternity for the better. Out of about 100 votes, there's a, a little over 100 guys there, I got one vote. <laughs> I got one vote, and it was a good friend of mine. He said, I, I think you do a good job. I got one vote. I was expected to win, but because I did not proclaim change, I lost. People want change. 500 years ago, this month, people were ripe for change. The world was so ready, especially the religious world was so ready for a change, and we're going to get into that in a, in a second. They were so ready for a change because all of the junk that was happening within the church. And as you know, Martin Luther was one of the, the ones that made, took this to the global level. And he, took, and he took his 95 theses and he nailed it to the castle church in Wittenberg. And it revolutionized Christianity. We know this as the Protestant what? Reformation. You know what I love about the word reformation? Is re means again. Form means to form or shape or, or, or change. What I love about the Reformation is, do you remember where, where God is talking to Moses and he's so frustrated with, with the people of Israel? He says, you know what, let's just get rid of him. And I, and I, and I personally believe that he's, he's doing this for Moses' sake. He's not really wanting to get rid of everybody. But he says, let's just get rid of everybody and we'll start again with your, with your family. But that's not really the nature of God. What he does is he reforms. He's not a sculptor that he's like, dink, 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 ah, there's a mistake, I'm going to throw it out. He reforms. And even though the clay somehow, which we are clay, Adama, Adam, makes its mistakes, he's still willing to reform and reform and reform and work with us despite 
the junk we put in to our lives, the junk we show the world the church is about, he's willing to reform. So the Protestant Reformation, now there's a lot that, that, is, that is based off of, but I'm going to give you four questions that I think were central to the Protestant Reformation. One was, what do I need to do to go to heaven? What do I need to do to go to heaven? Is it ba- what is it based on? The second question is, if I can find it. The second question is, is the word of God sufficient? Do you guys know what sort of the idea of this was? The sola what? Scriptura. A few weeks ago, and some of the elders know this, I met with a pastor um, of a non-denominational church who wanted to potentially uh, use some of our space. And he said, I'd like to know, I'd like to dialogue with you about Adventism. And I said, yeah, let's talk about it. And so, so we dialogued about this, and he said, you know, in my brief study, one thing that I remember is that there was a, an important person in your, in your history called Ellen White. So he knew about Ellen White. He said, you know, I heard that her writings are, you know, he was leaning towards authoritative. Um, and I said, we believe that she is inspired from the Lord. But let's make this clear. There is nothing in her doc. She did not create any new doctrine from her writings. I feel very strongly about this. That if we cannot defend what we believe on Scripture alone, then we're in trouble. I actually heard one lady the, talking to the first person I ever baptized, bless her soul. She said, she's like, I want you to be encouraged. You know, she was just encouraging the young lady, and she said, and Scripture says this. And she gave a quote that I knew was not from Scripture. I, I knew it was from, from Ellen White. And I sort of cringed. I'm not cringing because it was a bad quote. I'm cringing because sometimes we say this with the same authority and people don't hold her to the same authority. Is scripture enough? This was a reformation question. Or are the traditions and the other writings that the church leaders write, do we need those to form what we believe? Another question is, do pastors and priests have special privileges and authorities compared to you guys? Do we? I know in Hispanic countries, it's more so, right? I mean, you hold, you know, there's, there's just some things that the past, only a pastor can do. Um, and, and it can go from little things like, well, the pastor has to touch the, the bread, has to actually break the bread and the juice. And it can be, there are some churches that I know that the pastor alone wants to be in charge of the money, knowing how much money is This was a question back in the Reformation time. 
And this leading to the next question is, is church leadership the ultimate voice of God? These are hard questions. These are not questions that have died after the Reformation. These are questions that we're dealing with now. With conferences and unions and general conference and divisions. Are they the ultimate voice of God? Am I, do I have the higher capacity to hold the spirit than you do? Just because I hold this role. We hold so many sacred cows. You think about this. Think about the idea. You know, one of these days I probably will get stoned in here. You think about this idea of transubstantiation. Do you guys know that, what that means? Some of you do. Transubstantiation, which was a very big thing at this time, was the idea that the bread was literally the flesh of Christ. And the juice was literally the blood of Christ. So when, you would, when the priest would put this in your mouth, it would actually transform into real flesh. But it was Christ's flesh. Luckily, we've gotten away from that. Or have we? What do we do with our bread and our juice now? Do you know where it comes from that we treat it so... This is not New Testament, where we treat it so sacred. And I'm, and, and I'm not trying to take the sacredness of, of what we do. Because it, it is to remind us of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. But this sacrament, and I'm using that word sacrament specifically, has a lot of roots here, the way we view it. Because you know that New Testament, they were not doing it the way that we do it now. We're a lot closer to the church at this time than we were at that time. I'm glad that, I don't, that you don't expect me to put it in your mouth. That's what I'm happy the world was ripe, though. The world was ripe for something to change. I don't know if you know this, but just in England alone, the church, now this is before the Church of England comes, the church owned about a third of the land, of property in England. And they did this through things like simonry. Do you guys know what simonry, uh, simonry is? Simony. Um, simony is... Where, do you remember the story of Simon in, in the book of Acts where he tried to pay for the Holy Spirit? They were healing and stuff like that. And he said, how much do I need to give you so that I can do the same thing? And he was rebuked. That's horrible. Well, at this time, you could pay for church office. You could pay for church office. You could pay for church privileges, maybe to bring you closer to God. You can pay for holiness. Have you ever heard of indulgences? Indulgences were basically salvation for sale. You could pay for documents that's, you know, remission of sins. The idea that you had the holy sacraments that only the priest could do. And even though they knew that there was some bad stuff happening with the priests, the sacrament at least was still holy. So we could still do this. By the way, they knew bad stuff was happening in the priesthood, but luckily, the priesthood 
took care of its own issues. You didn't go to civil, you know, courts. You just take care of it in-house. That makes it real transparent. It was ripe. Actually, in the 1300s, in the 14th century, there was a thing called the Great Schism. Well, it actually ends in the 15th century, the Great Schism of the West. This is how ripe it was at that time. This is when people started realizing this church is in trouble, and I don't know if it's from the Lord. So in the 1300s, the the early 14th century, for about 70 years, the, the papal center, capital, was in Avignon in France. Did you guys know that? That it wasn't in Rome. So for about 70 years, it was in France. And pope after pope, I believe that there were five popes in succession, stayed in France. Well, finally, there was a pope, and I believe it was a Gregory, Gregory, Gregory VI, finally succeeded in bringing the papacy back to Rome. Now, he was not a good guy, and, and eventually he dies. And this next one that takes over is even worse. And his name is Urban VI. I have to refer to this. Remember, this is out of my comfort zone. I love history, but this is not the history that I'm really associated with. So Urban VI, and he treated the cardinals horrible. So the people were split between Avignon and Rome. Now, he's in Rome. He brought it back to Rome. But they had this counter-election then because they don't like this guy. And so they elected Clement the seventh, and he moves to Avignon. But the problem is, there's a pope here, and there's a pope here. And they would bicker about each other. And so the one in France started getting confederates from Spain and England, and the one in Rome from the, the area right there. Well, eventually... In Rome, you have Boniface, Innocent, Gregory VII, all succeed. So you got those in, in Rome. And then in Avignon, you have Benedict VIII and then Clement VII. And then you get to this point in about 1410 where there are actually three popes. You have John XXIII, Benedict III, and they're both in Avignon. And then Gregory Twelfth in Rome. And they could feel the people talking about it. This can't be from God. You have three leaders that are against each other, but they're all the voice of God? Do you understand how that doesn't make sense? And there was a rumbling at this time. And eventually they had this council at of Constance, which we will get to next week because that involves some of the reformers. Because they said, we need to put an end to this or we are going to lose control of this whole church. Actually, a couple of of those reformers pre-Martin Luther was right here. This is John Wycliffe, Wycliffe, however you want to pronounce it in, in your American ways. And then the next one is Jan Hus, or John Huss. And these reformers, pre-Martin Luther, 
we're saying this is not right. This is not God's intent. The scripture is for you. And like I said, I don't want to steal my own thunder for next week, but that's why Wycliffe started writing the Bible. This is pre-printing press, by the way. It's believed that it took 10 months to write a, a transcript of a Bible. And that is not 10 months at, oh, I'll spend an hour a day. From morning to sundown. Morning, sundown, 10 months. By the way, you know that they were burning Bibles too, right? Can you imagine investing 10 months of your life and then to see somebody... The world was ripe for reformation. I want to take you to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. And we're going to read all the way to 40. It says this, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you of Gideon or Barak or or Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in the battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again, Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while they were still, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes of the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what they had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. The whole scripture is about reformation. Do you realize this? The whole scriptures is about reformation. Do you, do you see the similarity? If you know any, of, of any history about the medieval history, do you see the similarity between what happened between God's people then and God's people throughout the Middle Ages? Our history is reformation. Because this is what happens. You think about a boat. Times change, right? If you leave a boat and you say, stay in place, boat, will it stay in place if it's on the sea? Will it stay in the exact same place? No, you'll start to drift. You'll drift this way, this way, this is why when those planes crash, when they, you know, they, they're, they're like, well, we're going we're gonna to make it so that we're going to search a, 
you know, thousand mile radius. Because within hours, what was here is now over here. I've seen it in Christianity. We have drifted. Maybe me personally. We as a church right here. We as a corporate church. Have you ever thought about this? You know, when, when our church, when the Seventh-day Adventist church was founded, 90% of what we discussed were really theological issues. The doctrines, the biblical doctrines, the great controversy. Do you know what probably the majority of what Seventh-day Adventists within the last few decades deal with? Lifestyle issues. You know, who we're going to ordain or not ordain. This is what we're dealing with now. Do you feel we've drifted? We have drifted. So God is calling us, and, and we're going to go through the history in the next few months, on, I mean next few weeks, <laughs> the next few weeks about the Protestant Reformation. But maybe, and hopefully by the end of this series, you will see that maybe God is calling you to a personal reformation. Because maybe we have all drifted a little bit. Maybe if you notice that we're talking more about politics than about the power of God to transform our nation, then maybe we've drifted. Maybe if we do discuss more about these issues of church politics, then we have drifted. Maybe there is time for reformation starting right here and right there and right there. And as this movement happens, as you see from these individuals, as a movement of one happens, then two, then three, then a hundred. And a world is transformed by personal reformations happening all over. May this happen. That is my challenge to you. May that happen to the Downers Grove Seventh-day Adventist Church. And as Moses, as God told Moses to tell to Aaron to bless the people, Yevareka Adonai Vayishmareka Yeer Adonai Panav Elecha Vichunecha Yisa Adonai Panav Elecha Vayasem Lecha Shalom The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his countenance towards you and give you peace. Father, reform us. Bring us back to the word of the Lord. Bring us back to the reliance upon your word, upon the power of your spirit. And may we be used in the ushering of 
your soon return. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Happy Sabbath, everybody. We do have potluck downstairs if you would like to stay.